NFL Week 13 delivers a set of intriguing games and the return of Deshaun Watson to his old stomping grounds in Houston. How do you think that'll turn out? Will the top four teams in college football stay the same after Saturday night? A reported $300 million offer is on the table for free agent Aaron Judge by the New York Yankees. Will he sign on the dotted line or is that just a starting point? USA moves on in the World Cup. The latest in the NBA and NHL and Tyson Fury's reason for coming out of retirement will shock you. The last month of 2022 has arrived, which means the first podcast is on the horizon. It is all coming up. But first, this message. What is happening, my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. Hello, December, as we start the countdown towards the new year. On this first day of a new month, I bring you a new podcast as we go through the sports universe as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle or even as early as this past Monday... I welcome you guys and gals back. Quite a bit to dive into, lots to delve into everything that's going on, whether it's the World Cup, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, a lot kicking off there, especially with the latest offer for a one Aaron Judge and the college football Final Four. They'll go into their conference championships this week. So again, let's just get right into it. And tonight kicks off a very intriguing Week 13 In the NFL, where we have Buffalo going to New England, the first of two meetings between those two teams. Obviously, this is going to be do or die for New England because at 6-5, and and after that tough loss last Thursday on Thanksgiving against the Vikings, they are pretty much going to have to scratch, claw, and fight to see if they can keep themselves relevant here in this AFC playoff picture. Buffalo, we know they've righted the ship after that brutal loss at home against the Minnesota Vikings to where they were able to win two games in Detroit. One being a home game against Cleveland because of the snowstorm up in Western New York. And then, of course, last Thursday on Thanksgiving where they had to pull out a last-second win against the Detroit Lions. But with those two teams 
And finally, a very good Thursday night. I know it has been slim pickings when it comes to the Amazon Prime games throughout the course of the year. But hopefully tonight, a lot of people will keep their eyes on that. They will watch to see whether or not New England is going to continue to put themselves in this playoff picture for the AFC. And with still six games to go, and that's the one thing, we're already into December. And generally in a regular NFL year, we would look at possibly the last five games, but more likely be the last four games of the season where we'll get to the quarter pole to fast forward. And hopefully once we get to the first weekend of January, we'd host the wild card round and get into the playoffs leading up to the Super Bowl. But obviously that's not the case. It almost seems as if there's still a third of the season left for some teams because you still have Green Bay, Washington, I believe even Carolina off the top of my head, they still haven't received or gone to their bye weeks. And I believe after this week, they will finally get a blow and get a chance to regroup to see where the final five games of the season will lead for those teams. But we're going to see what will take into shape with not only the game tonight, but also everything that's happening throughout the course of the NFL Sunday, where you have a lot of very interesting games, intriguing games to say the least, where we look at the Jets going to Minnesota to see if they could piggyback off of what Mike White did last week against the Chicago Bears. And then you also have the Washington football team or the Commanders in its first year with that name coming up the turnpike to play the Giants in a huge game for both teams. The Giants, similar to the Patriots in regard to it, they need to win this game in the worst way. They have a brutal schedule that lies ahead where they still have to play the Commanders twice, the Eagles twice. So to think they got four of their final six games against the division opponent, and it's just two of them. They're done with the Cowboys, and we already know the Cowboys have swept them. So this is a huge week for the Giants to see where they're going to put themselves in position as far as the postseason goes. And Washington, you wonder if they're ever going to cool off. Maybe this will be the week that they do so. They actually have their bye after this game against the Giants. And then after the bye... They host the Giants down in D.C. So talk about an interesting stretch here for a Washington commander team that a lot of people thought that they wouldn't even be here at this point considering bringing in Carson Wentz. That experiment has failed. Taylor Heineke with his big heart and maybe not a lot of talent, but he has led this team to a 7-5 and record and let's see if they can prevail at MetLife against the Giants this coming Sunday. Tennessee goes to Philadelphia. We know Tennessee, even after them losing last week, to the Bengals, but they have a clear-cut path to winning a division because of how weak the AFC South is, and the Eagles continue to trudge along 10-1 and as they try to pad their lead there in the NFC to where they'll host the postseason throughout January and into February. So that's an intriguing game on the front there. Miami and San Francisco, that is one where a lot of people are going to look at the Dolphins to see if they're for real or not, and... How could they not when we're 11 games in, in games that Tua Tagovailoa has started and finished, he's 8-0. The one loss on his record was, of course, the game on Thursday night where he got knocked out in Cincinnati. Of course, didn't finish the game, but the Dolphins ended up losing. But knowing that he has been a perfect 8-0 when he has started under center and completed 60 minutes of football... Now they are on the midst of a three-game road trip where they go to the Bay Area or outside of the Bay Area because as we know, it's in Santa Clara, about what? Half hour, 40 minutes south 
of San Francisco. But this is going to be an interesting test because they're going to go up against a Niner team. As we all know, they're stout defensively. We know what they could do on offense with Jimmy Garoppolo, who's not spectacular, but we all know he's solid. But with George Kittle, Christian McCaffrey, Brandon Ayuk, and we cannot forget Debo Samuel, it's a team that could go up against anybody, especially when everything's clicking. And we're going to see whether or not that this team that averages close to 30 points a game, are they going to be able to do that against a Niner team that we all know could be in the running to go to a Super Bowl this year. And then after that, they go to Los Angeles. I wonder if they're going to actually stay out on the West Coast considering that they would have to fly back and then fly out to L.A. to play a Sunday night game, which has been flexed. Thankfully, they took the Denver-Kansas City game, which was originally planned and scheduled, out of that time slot, 8-20 next Sunday on NBC. Unfortunately, they didn't do that this week because they had the Colts going to Dallas, and nobody's going to want to watch that game. That is a game that you could see Dallas winning 24-3 at the half, and nobody's going to watch after that. And obviously, we just watched them this past Monday night against Pittsburgh, And for pretty much the first half, they were sleepwalking. They did wake up in the third quarter and then end up losing the game there late in the fourth quarter against the Steelers. But with Miami, this is going to be a very interesting stretch to see what they do here. And then after they play both West Coast teams, obviously with the NFC Niners and the AFC Chargers, which is a huge game, the following week they go to Buffalo. And we all know that it's going to be cold. It's going to be gray. And who knows if there's going to be snowflakes in the forecast, so the Dolphins certainly have their work cut out for them to win a division, you would think they should at least win two of these games, I shouldn't say should, for them to be successful, I would say win two of these games, and it would be nice to beat the Niners to start off this three-game road trip, the Charger game, who knows, we know the Chargers are up and down, and they could put four, three great quarters, and then in the fourth quarter, with Coach Brandon Staley, it could just go up and smoke. The more important game is that Buffalo game because if they do beat the Bills there in two weeks, they will not only have the tiebreaker advantage over the Bills, but on top of that would put themselves in good stead in all likelihood as a two seed in the AFC, which means that they'll be able to host two home games before having to go to KC if it so happens to fall that way. So very interesting stretch here for the Dolphins, which starts in San Francisco. And then you also have another big game on the docket. Let's see. No, that pretty much calls for it. That's it. Because you're not going to look at Pittsburgh, Atlanta. You're not going to look at Green Bay, Chicago, Jacksonville, Detroit, Denver at Baltimore. The one game that I was looking at, not that it's a huge game by any stretch, but there is going to be a Super Bowl-like feel in one city Sunday at 1 o'clock, and that's going to be in Houston. Now, mind you, the Texans... They are right now going to be the team that's going to have the number one pick in the draft next year. And I'm sure they're going to go with a quarterback. You would think Bryce Young is going to be all of what the Texan fans have dreams or thoughts in their head as we get toward the holiday season. But the team that they're going to be hosting are the Cleveland Browns. And people are going to say, Jay Reels, what's the big deal? Cleveland Browns going to Houston, even though the Browns did beat Tampa the other day. Well, that's going to be the first game that Deshaun Watson, the former Houston Texan quarterback, is going to play against his former team, teammates, organization, etc. And we all know that the Texans have had a long year. They've been competitive. I understand they've had some games where they've been out of it and have not played well, considering last week they were in Miami and they were losing, what, 30 nothing at the half? But now that they 
are at this point where they're one nine and one, and with Deshaun Watson coming to town, and we know that the Houston sports fan isn't anything close to what we see here in the Northeast, whether you're a New York fan, Philly, Boston, etc. But I'm sure that the Texan fan has been waiting all year, knowing that this team was going to have a long season, that there was going to be a lot of bumps and bruises along the way with Lovey Smith as the coach and Davis Mills as your quarterback. And now here is the one moment where, at least for one day, Houston's going to be relevant because the crowd, I'm sure they're going to come out in full force to go against the guy that was supposed to be their franchise quarterback and not to rehash everything that has happened over the last year and a half to two years with Deshaun Watson. But you know that there are going to be throngs of people that are going to shout all types of obscenities and a lot of things that shouldn't be called for. But again, this is going to be the beginning of a short road, only six games, and I believe three road games for the Cleveland Browns. But this is going to be, at least for the immediate future, of what Deshaun Watson is going to experience. And why not throw him right into the lines then? Granted, again, it's not Lincoln Financial Field. It is not MetLife Stadium. It is not Foxborough. It is NRG Stadium in Houston. But you know they're going to be loud, vociferous, and are going to be relentless at their former quarterback. And how Deshaun Watson is going to fare here, as far as this first game, I'm sure there's going to be butterflies. I'm sure there's going to be nerves. He's going to have to block out all that noise. And unfortunately, we didn't even get a chance to listen to what he had to say because he was scheduled to meet the media yesterday and obviously did not show up, was not a part of even a soundbite or a question asked. I don't know if that was based on the Browns and their PR office and even the front office for that matter, not wanting to put him on the griddle and... You have to ask yourself, why not? Get it over with. Have him be in front of all the cameras, in front of all the microphones, in front of all the media, and it's not as if Cleveland is New York. You would think that, let's just have him out there, put him out for 20 minutes. I understand it has to be a little bit controlled. You just can't have him sitting out there for an hour answering 45 different versions of the same question. But by him postponing this, media session, and who knows if it's going to happen today, tomorrow, whatever. But one more time, rip the Band-Aid off. Just get it over with. Have him face the music, face the media, and go ahead about his business to try to get himself focused for a game that he hasn't stepped on a football field minus the preseason in what will be 700 days. And for the Browns, how that's going to play out for the rest of the season, they are 4-7. and seven. I doubt that they're going to run the table in order for them to make it to the postseason, they still have to play Baltimore at home. They have to go to Cincinnati. They do have another game in Pittsburgh, so they still have three division games, which, as we all know, they're very tricky. And for the most part, one more loss is going to knock them out because a lot of the teams there at the bottom of the AFC bracket when it comes to the conference, they're at 7-4. and four, And with them being three games behind, they have no margin of error if they even have any remote chance of making it into the playoffs. So we will see what happens there. NFL week 13, a very good slate. I hate the Sunday night game. Your Monday night game is New Orleans at Tampa, which I know they're going to spin it as pretty much a last ditch effort for New Orleans, considering that they are four and eight and with the Buccaneers at five and six with another bad loss. And let's see what Atlanta does here on Sunday against Pittsburgh as Atlanta is still within distance. And the same for even Carolina 
in New Orleans for that matter, because of how far the Buccaneers have fallen and come back to the pack. But you have to think that at the end of the day, Tampa's going to prevail whether at 8-9 and nine or 9-8. Nine and eight. And as much as they want to quote-unquote make this a big game or make this a must-watch because this is going to be competitive, two division rivals on top of that, they're still within arm's length of making it to first place, being the New Orleans Saints. And remember, they did lose to the Buccaneers way back in week two. So no matter how you cut it, I'm not going to look at this as a big game because I think when it's all said and done, Tampa is going to be the team that is the last one standing there in the NFC South to win a division and move on into the postseason. Besides that, people, that's what I have there with the NFL. Nothing more else to get into. You do have quite a few games that at least on Monday's podcast we could chew on. And I'm sure there's going to be one of these bad games that will come down to the wire as we saw there last week because the NFL schedule for Week 12 was bad, but we had a lot of those games pretty much go haywire in the witching hour, in the 1 o'clock hour. And let's see if they could get a carbon copy with a much better slate here come this Sunday and, of course, with the game tonight in Foxborough. So that's what I have there with the NFL. To keep it with the football theme, but now to turn it over to college, we do know who the college football Final Four are as of right this second. Georgia, Michigan, TCU, and USC. And they all will have their conference championships this week. Georgia and LSU, which is pretty much a home game because the game will be played at Mercedes-Benz Stadium there in Atlanta. You have Purdue and Michigan, which should be no match for the Wolverines as they should beat up on the Boilermakers. But even if they do lose, they'll be fine. Same for Georgia. Those two teams will make it even if they do lose. Then you have TCU playing Kansas State. TCU wins, no doubt about it. And then USC will play Utah. Same deal there, although they did lose to Utah early on the season. So the big question coming into this weekend with these four teams it's not necessarily Georgia Michigan they're going to be fine no matter what happens with those games but TCU if they do happen to lose and with Ohio State and Alabama waiting in the wings it's going to be very interesting to see whether or not the committee will choose either Ohio State or even Alabama over Ohio State yes that same Alabama team with two losses and we all know about Ohio State losing last week to Michigan just to make everything perfect If TCU and USC wins, we already know that the college football Final Four is going to be set. But if you have one of the two teams lose, let's say if it is TCU, I know a lot of people, including yours truly, think that TCU should still deserve it based on what they did throughout the regular season and making it to the conference championship where obviously Ohio State and Alabama are nowhere to be found this weekend. But there is going to be that faction because even though they are in the Big 12, but they didn't really play a big schedule. And yes, there are teams like Baylor and Oklahoma State and Oklahoma, which obviously are in powerhouses, but they are pretty good. But even then, it's still not going to trump what the SEC has done throughout the course of the year and how they played and how they fared. Look at LSU. LSU is here, and even if they do win, they have three losses. There's no way that they're going to make it into the Final Four, but there are going to be teams, whether it is Tennessee, whether it is Alabama or Ohio State, to think that they're deserving to move up into that spot. Me personally, I don't think that's the case. And that shouldn't be the case. But if TCU does lose, and let's say USC wins, we know USC is going to move up, and then the debate will begin on whether or not TCU should be out, and then slide in Ohio State or even Alabama. I think in order for Alabama to even get in, Both of those teams are going to have to lose. 
And then you could have a situation where Ohio State can maybe move up to three or even four and then have Alabama sneak in the back door right behind them. I don't think Alabama's going to make it no matter what. Would I be shocked if both teams lose, TCU and USC? In this college football season, you never know. I would be surprised. I don't think I'd be shocked. But you also have to wonder whether or not if the Ohio State, Alabama waiting on the outside, even if, let's say, USC were to lose, and you would think that Ohio State is going to get in there. I don't think Alabama will. But there are going to be some people to think that Alabama deserves to be there. And even with Ohio State with the one loss, etc. But they're going to look at the SEC as that being the bigger and better conference to know that they should be more deserving to go up against, dare I even say, Georgia in a semifinal, which I don't think the committee wants. I don't think they're going to want to have a scenario, let's just say for argument's sake, that if both TCU and USC loses to where you're going to squeeze in Ohio State and Alabama, I don't think they want to see a... Georgia, Alabama, Michigan State, or Michigan, Ohio State, Final Four. They don't want to see these rematches. And there's no way that you could jump Alabama over Ohio State to get to a three seed to play Michigan and then have Ohio State play Georgia. That's not going to happen. And I'm sure that's going to be a gigantic headache for the committee. And that's why I think TCU, even if they do lose, they'll go back a spot. They'll be fourth and they'll end up playing Georgia. But then that's when you could push up Ohio State, which I get. They would have to then be, in this particular instance, they would have to be number three. But then I have to take that back because if USC does win, of course, they'll get number three. They'll just flip-flop with TCU. So a lot of this, all these permutations can happen. They can go just haywire, especially if both of these teams lose. I think TCU is going to end up winning. USC, I think they're going to want to exact revenge after losing to Utah earlier this year, but you never know. Utah will do anything in their power to try to upset that apple cart so the Trojans won't get into the college football playoff. But I think when it's all said and done, I think the top four as it is right now is going to be the same. And if it does happen to change, I think it's going to be a scenario where TCU, if they do lose, they'll still remain, and then you'll have a scenario where USC will move up, Or if USC drops out and TCU wins, then it's a scenario where you're going to have Ohio State be the number four team in the country and therefore will play Georgia for the semifinal on New Year's Eve. That's the only way I think it's going to cut it. Alabama, I'd be shocked even, like I said, with the two teams losing at the bottom, you know, the three and four seeds in the nation. I can't see that happening. So I think TCU will still be safe, but it's just a matter of USC losing, and even if TCU does lose, I think USC goes to three and TCU four, and that's that. But you know there's going to be some arguments, and you know there's going to be some debates on whether or not Ohio State would still be deserving if one of those two teams do happen to lose. So we'll see. We'll recap it all on Monday. It's going to be interesting. You're going to have the four games, and you would think, again, Georgia and Michigan, if they lose their games even 50 to nothing, it doesn't matter. They're going to make it. But... TCU and USC is going to be where the college football is going to put the spotlight on to see whether or not they're going to prevail or lose. And therefore, we will see how this will all shake down come late Saturday night. 
All right, now let's turn our attention to the fall and winter sports. Let me lace up my high tops to talk about the NBA. And there really isn't much to discuss here. I know you've had a couple of injuries come up the pike here over the last few days. One being Carl Anthony Towns out four to six weeks for the T-Wolves. And the T-Wolves have just been middling here, even with the Rudy Gobert trade. So for Carl Anthony Towns to be out with a calf strain, it was feared to be an Achilles injury at first. But lucky for them, it wasn't as severe as that. So you're going to have Towns on the show for quite some time. Let's see how the Timberwolves navigate this stretch without their big man. And then you also have Ben Simmons, no shock there, as he was experiencing some knee soreness. But then it was revealed that he also is suffering a calf issue, that the pain in the back of the knee was actually the upper calf. And we know Simmons and his ordeal when it comes to injuries and him being out. And we've seen this and talked about this, I believe, last podcast, or if not the podcast before, where a lot of these guys have been out with injuries. We talked about Kawhi Leonard being the poster child for load management and how even after an ACL injury that he suffered there in the playoffs two years ago, he hasn't really been 100%, and you would think by now he would be, but that hasn't been the case. So the injuries continue to, I don't want to say pile or mount, but when it comes to some of these key players, we're already seeing what is taking place here with whether it's the big men, whether it's even LeBron, A couple of weeks ago, we know about Anthony Davis, him him being out of the lineup as well. But the NBA is pretty much status quo. Not a lot has happened here over the last few days. I know the Celtics continue to ride high. They're in the midst of a home-and-home, really a home-and-home, where they just hosted the Miami Heat last night. Big win there for the Celtics as they continue to win 18-4, best record in the sport. And they also host the Heat tomorrow at home at the Garden. Other than that, Not much else to discuss. I know the Phoenix Suns have actually played well here. They're winners of, I believe, six in a row. And you had Devin Booker go off of 51 last night to the tune of MVP chance. Now, I understand it's a little bit early to even discuss MVP. But for Booker, who I believe shot 20 of 25 in the game, so that was very impressive to say the least. But the Suns, who have gotten off to a slow start for them, winners of six in a row, so they're trying to get a little bit of separation, although the Nuggets are nipping on their heels in the West. And as we talked about the other day, the top 11 seeds in the Western Conference were all separated by four and a half games, which is still the same today, but that's one, I don't want to say race because you're not going to have 11 teams go at it. You know there's going to be some separation as we continue to move along here, but when we look at the Western Conference, to know that a team like the Lakers who are on the outside looking in, and although have played a little bit better here down the stretch, the Mavericks at 500, they're currently the 11 seed, and on the outside, Portland, they've certainly come back to the pack as they've not played well after their torrid start. So the West is going to be wide open until we get to, I would think, the All-Star break. And then at that point, we'll definitely see some separation, the pretenders from the contenders out in that conference. And in the East, a little bit different. I'm not going to go to the extent to where There's that logjam that we see currently in the Western Conference. It's a little bit more spread out here. But with the Celtics and even with the Bucs playing well as they're just separated by one game. And then you have Cleveland, Indiana. Those are two teams that you got to wonder, are they going to be in it for the long haul? Are they going to have that sustainability where we think that the Sixers are going to start to rise and play better once they get their core pieces back, whether your name is James Harden, Joel Embiid, etc.? The Nets, they have now won three in a row, and you wonder if they're going to start to click here and get themselves a little bit higher in the Eastern Conference. Then you have, of course, teams like the Wizards and Knicks that are 
hovering at the bottom of the 7-10 through 10 range in the Eastern Conference. Other than that, I know the Heat are on the outside looking in right now. They're 10-12, and 12, and they've been very inconsistent to start off their year. So, still a lot of basketball to be played. I know that we're pretty much just getting warmed up. Everybody's going to look forward to in a few weeks with the Christmas Day slate. And again, let me talk about that real quick. Christmas Day, you have the five NBA games as we see annually. But of course, that's on a Sunday where you're going to have three NFL games. But you're going to have three of the worst NFL games possible. But we even know that you could have Jacksonville play Houston on Christmas Day. And that could be the only game standing. But the ratings are going to be through the roof in comparison to the NBA. Because remember, Christmas Day, you can have Green Bay at Miami, Denver at the Rams, and Tampa Bay at Arizona. Now, I understand Miami's going to be playing for something, and that's going to be at the back end, as we talked about earlier, in the midst of that three-game road trip. So that's going to be their first game back at home after that trip. So I'm sure they're going to be looking forward to some home cooking, relaxing. Not to say that they're going to put their feet up on Christmas, because Green Bay, who knows where they're going to be at that point. I didn't mention this during the football segment, but Aaron Rodgers, who is nursing an injury, but says he's going to play against the Chicago Bears, but even he said that if the Packers are out of it at that point, that the discussion about Jordan Love possibly playing out the string and he was open to those discussions, who knows? By then you may have Jordan Love, so that's going to be a nothing game. On top of Denver and LA, two teams that are out to sea for 2022, and then on top of that, you're going to have Tampa and Arizona, where Arizona, they are done for 2022 as well. And Tampa, yes, they're going to be fighting for a division title, but... Tampa isn't as sexy as they were the last couple of years considering that they were one of the top teams in the conference. So even with those three games, to go up against an NBA slate, which off the top of my head I can't recall, I believe the Bucs and Celtics are going to play on Christmas. I believe they're the 5.30 game. They're not the primetime game, and I don't even think they're the 2.30 game. I know the Knicks have the first game at noon, which they usually do. But even still, You would think that the NBA, they're going to look forward to that day to try to get their fans to watch. But unfortunately, the NFL reigns supreme. And chances are, they're going to get squashed in the ratings no matter who's going to be on the court that day. Whether your name is Luka Doncic, whether your name is Giannis Antetokounmpo, Jason Tatum. Now that I think about it off the top of my head, I think Dallas is playing the Lakers in one of those games. I believe they're the 8 o'clock game. So even with all the star power that the NBA is going to have to offer it's still going to pale in comparison even to Green Bay, Miami. And even as I said at the beginning of the year, think about this, people. You would think that on Christmas Day, you would have a setting to where it would be in a cold-weather city. So whether the game was being played in Green Bay, in this case it's not, it's in Miami, or in Chicago, or in Pittsburgh, or in Buffalo, where you could really get the feel for Christmas as you get later into the day, you get the hot cocoa ready with the marshmallows, If you have a home with a fireplace, you get that on and popping. But no, you got Miami, warm weather city. You got LA, which is pretty much played in the dome, but for the most part, warm weather city. And Arizona, which is also in the dome, but also in a warm weather city. So you're going to have no feel for Christmas on Christmas Day with these NFL cities, but still, they'll be able to do a lot better than the NBA will. So that's my rant on that. So we have the NBA to look forward to now as we get into the month of December, as well as the NHL, which... I understand. They're long seasons. You're not going to zero in on a particular matchup or a particular night or a particular game. And even with the other night, you had a high-scoring game between Seattle and LA, a 9-8 game, which looked like a baseball score than a hockey score. But even that, which may open your eyes as a sports fan, but again, you're not going to 
Oh, let me look at the highlights for that. Seattle, give them credit. They've done well here in their second year of existence. And you wonder if they're going to have any sustainability as I segue and put on my skates to do some NHL. But even for a team like the Kraken, who doesn't really have an identity that a lot of people can't really look and see, oh, who's on their team or who's on their roster that you could gravitate to. Yes, the die in the wall hockey fan, you could definitely do that. But even with that outcome the other night and with a scenario where you had Chris Letang and his health who suffered another stroke, he suffered one in 2014 where he was on the shelf for a couple of months. And even though this isn't deemed career or life-threatening, but he's going to be out indefinitely. And we all know the Penguin team, long in the tooth, especially with their aging veteran superstar players, Sidney Crosby, Denny Malkin, etc. But the NHL, not much to rally around there, even with the Devils continuing to win, even with the Bruins continuing to win, and the Flyers snapping that streak against my Islanders the other night, of course, as they were in the midst of a 10-game winless streak. But the NHL... There isn't much that you're going to look at here as we're past the quarter pole of the season. I understand the Maple Leafs have played better and Mitch Marner is now, I believe, has the franchise record for most consecutive points. I believe it's 15 games off the top of my head. I actually should look into that and I will in just a second. But Toronto, we all know with them, with Mitch Marner, Austin Matthews, even John Tavares, it's all about what's going to happen April through June. But as we all know, they can't even get out of the month of April because with their playoff foibles and everything that has happened with that franchise, especially over the last 15 years or so, not making it to a Stanley Cup victory parade, 1967 was the last time they won. And we all know that no matter what they do this regular season, it's all going to be based and judged on what they do come April. So even with Marner playing well and even with the Maple Leafs turning it around to the point where they're only three points behind the Bruins at the top of the Atlantic, but one more time, Again, it's all going to be contingent on what they do to try to make themselves relevant for a Stanley Cup run in the springtime. And yes, Mitch Marner, he actually tied. He didn't break a record. He tied a franchise record point streak. It is now 18 games. I know I said 15. Daryl Sittler has the mark going back into the 70s. So let's see if Marner can extend that uh, with their next game. I guess it'll be tomorrow or even tonight for that matter as I take a look at their schedule. Let's take a brief look for the Leaf fan out there. So Toronto, they will have their next game tomorrow night. Am I seeing this right? No, they're actually going to play Saturday in Tampa. And I know recently that whole situation with Pat Maroon and Jack Edwards mocking Maroon. And give it up for Maroon because now he made that into a charity. I know... Jack Edwards, the Boston Bruin, he is, I believe, the play-by-play announcer or even a color commentator. I don't know. Obviously, I'm not on top of the Bruin broadcasting situation, but he had made a comment about Pat Maroon, veteran NHL player, three Stanley, three Stanley Cup wins in his uh, back pocket, especially over the last few years, one in St. Louis and then the two with the Tampa Bay Lightning, how Edwards came out to say that he was listed, I believe, at 6'3", 220, but he actually looks bigger than that. He probably thinks that he's had pizza or that's been his diet since the start of the year. And once Maroon caught wind of that, he decided to put forth a charity when it comes to bullying, when it comes to just being attacked. And that was uncalled for. I don't even know if Edwards has made an apology. And if you don't know, Edwards was, was a one-time ESPN 
anchor for SportsCenter. So if you don't know the name, you may put the face to that name and realize, oh yeah, that Jack Edwards. Yes, that same guy. So that was a bad job by him. But Maroon at least turned the negative into a positive, putting forth that charity. And let me take a look at that before I move on to other things. So Maroon obviously didn't answer back in the media or didn't even feel as if that he wanted to go at it with the announcer there. But he is now putting that forth a charity as I take a look at this here. And yes, he made some comments. And here were his exact comments, Edwards. Maroon listed at 238, I quote, that was day one of training camp. I've got a feeling that he's had a few more pizzas between now and then. Fasting, inadvertent fasting for Pat Maroon is like four hours without a meal. But hey, he's won three Stanley Cups in a row. Who could agree with his formula? Or argue, I should say. I said agree. So now what he's doing, Maroon, is turning that and in support of those struggling with mental health, bullying, body imaging, etc. He's making a $2,000 donation in the name of Jack Edwards to the Tampa Bay Thrives. And he's encouraging Tampa Bay and even his teammates got on board, had put forth comments on Twitter, etc. So good for Maroon. Obviously, he's one of the last remaining tough guys in the league. And for him to go ahead and do that, kudos to you, my guy. So Jack Edwards, you look like a fool right about now with his comments that he said the other day. But other than that, NHL again, just like the NBA, that's what we have there. And Latang, we wish him a speedy recovery as, again, not career-threatening, but knowing that he's going to, excuse me, take some time off here and just recover and get his health back physically. Uh, hopefully that happens much sooner than later. Let me turn my attention out of baseball. We got a few things here cooking. I want to get into the Hall of Fame. There's some things that are going on there. As far as the 2023 Hall of Fame ballot, as well as the Contemporary Baseball Players Committee ballot, which that I find very fascinating. But before I even get to that, I talked about this on Monday where the San Francisco Giants, the week prior, they were flirting with the idea of bringing Aaron Judge to their team. Not to the point that they were going to sign him on the dotted line, but there was a scenario where they came away with that meeting and Aaron Judge as very positive as maybe the possibility of bringing in the current AL MVP and record-setting MVP, as we know, with the home run season record for the American League and for the Yankee team record, as we know, with 62. But for all that talk with San Francisco and maybe some buzz in LA about them maybe pursuing Aaron Judge, how I looked at it on Monday was, Where's the dollars and cents? We could talk about all the rumors and how great the meeting was and how much we enjoyed having Aaron Judge and trying to incorporate Steph Curry to even recruit him to come to the Bay Area. We could put that all aside. I want to know what are the dollars and cents. And right now, the Yankees, as reported, has put forth an offer of eight years and $300 million. And I'm sure there's some people out there that think that's not going to do it. But when you look at the annual average salary, it's $37.5 million which would be the highest in baseball history. That's more than what Mookie Betts would make. That's more than what Mike Trout would make. That's more than even his teammate Garrett Cole, which I believe is at $36 million currently with the nine-year $324 million deal he signed back before the 2020 season. So now you have a scenario where the Yankees have now put their money where their mouths are and Judge, who bet on himself, and even with the offer prior to April 7th at the start of the season where Brian Cashman had admitted that they had put forth a seven-year, $218 million deal to where Aaron Judge said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to pass. I'm going to 
bet on myself and see how this all will play out. And as we talked about a second ago, the record-breaking season. And now it's just a matter of what does Judge want? Because is it a thing where he wants more years? And mind you, come April of next year, April 26th, he's going to turn 31 years of age. It's not as if he's 26 where he's looking for that 10-year deal. And it's not to say he can't look for that 10-year deal. But as we all know, when that 10-year deal ends, he's going to be 40 years old. So are the Yankees willing to push it to that amount if the Giants, say, come out with a lower annual average, let's say 10 years at $350 million? To where he's going to make $35 million a year? Is he going to take that over the 8 for 300 that is on the table? And now it's up to Aaron Judge on whether or not he's going to sign on that dotted line. Or is he going to go ahead and say, nah, I want a little bit more. Whether that's in terms of money or years or both. And who knows what other team's going to step up to the mix. I don't know if other than the San Francisco Giants, does that mean the Dodgers which they've talked about pairing payroll. Are they thinking about maybe throwing their hat in the ring to maybe give him, let's say, a six-year deal that's worth $250 million, where obviously it's less as far as years go, but it's going to be more annual average, over well over $40 million a year. Who knows? Or if there's another team out there that is willing to put forth that type of coin, that type of bank, to know that they're going to bring in box office. They know that he's going to be an attraction no matter what team he signs with. But of course, the big markets, whether it is San Francisco, LA, I doubt it that if the Red Sox are going to flirt with bringing in Aaron Judge and who knows if he would even go there. But now this is where the ball will start to roll. And this is what we want to see because we think that once Aaron Judge comes off the market, then that's going to play in for a lot of the other players, which I'm not going to really subscribe to that. Because to me, it's not a matter of what Aaron Judge is going to make. That's going to impact what Trey Turner is going to make. Or Carlos Correa is going to make. The position players. Forget about the pitchers. Forget about Jacob DeGrom, Justin Verlander, even Carlos Rodon for that matter. This is about the position player. So I'm not going to sit here to think that if Judge signs, let's say he does sign 8 for 300, that oh, now Trey Turner is going to even try to ask for more or get more or get something comparable. Because to me, Trey Turner offensively is not in the same stratosphere as Aaron Judge. And I get it. They're two different players. Trey Turner is more of a top of the order table setter where he's going to score a lot of runs, steal a lot of bases. Yes, he does hit for power and yes, can drive in runs, but not on the clip that Aaron Judge has throughout the course of his career. So we're going to have to wait and see whether or not Judge is going to nibble on this or is he going to use this as leverage to go Back to the people in San Francisco saying, yes, I do want to come home. Yes, I want to be closer to my family about an hour and a half away near Sacramento and how if they're going to be able to match that or even, as we know, exceed that so he could put on the old San Francisco or the off-white giant uniform with the number 99 in the back and have the big press conference and the pomp and circumstance or will Hal Steinbrenner look at that and say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to have to up the ante. And they have come out and say that they're going to be a little bit flexible when it comes to this. But if the Giants or any other team is going to blow them out of the water with the years, let's start there, and not necessarily the money, will the Yankees bite on that? That's the big question. That's pretty much the only question when it comes to the Aaron Judge sweepstakes. Because other than that, there isn't anything else to discuss. 
So we're definitely going to be in tune and I'll have my fingers on the pulse when the time comes on whether or not this offer is enough. Is it going to be more? I think Judge is going to ask for the sun, moon, and stars. Why not? Look at the season he just came off of. Even if he doesn't match that throughout the next eight or ten years of his baseball career. Another big signing and kudos to the Houston Astros who do not have a GM. Think about this. Because remember, Jim Click, who they wanted to bring back for one year, he refused. So he's a free agent to go elsewhere. And they have not brought in a GM to replace Jim Click. So... They go ahead and sign Jose Abreu, the former Chicago White Sox first baseman, to a three-year, I believe it was $58.5 million deal, which, let me tell you something, in this day and age, that is as cost-effective as any team could possibly put forth. And kudos to the Astros. I'm sure Abreu at this point, maybe he's looking just to want to get a ring and knowing that he could be a part of this lineup to go along with Jordan Alvarez, to go along with Alex Bregman, Jose Altuve, I would think Michael Brantley. I don't think he's a free agent. So I think Brantley will be back in the mix. So to have Guriel, Yuli Guriel, on his way out, and I believe he's, what, 37, 38 years of age, who has been a very good Astro, but now to bring in a Brayu, upgrade, 1,000%. And especially at that cost. So people could say, oh, the rich get richer, whatever. You could say that, but that was a shrewd and great business move on the part of the Houston Astros to go out to get a guy, a right-handed bat, who is a... Good first base, but he's not great defensively. But we all know what he's capable of other than a bit of a down year offensively as far as power numbers go in 2022. But when you look at the back of his baseball card and bring him onto a team that's already won a World Series, that's already been to six straight ALCSs and have been to four World Series, not only was it a no-brainer, but kudos to Abreu for taking a discount knowing that he probably could have got a lot more elsewhere, but you could already tell that he wants to win. And why not go to the team that has already won a World Series and has been pretty much a mainstay in the ALCS over the last six years? So kudos to them and kudos to Abreu on that marriage here for the next few years and how that will turn out. If he's healthy, I'm sure that contract is going to pay double of what it's worth with it being $58.5 million. Now let me get to the Hall of Fame ballot real quick. It was released, I believe, I don't know, about seven to ten days ago where the top guys on the list here, and there's really only one, and that is debatable to say the least. Headlining that is Carlos Beltran. And we all know Beltran drafted Kansas City Royals, Mets, bounced around everywhere. Houston Astros, he had that great run in 2004 in the postseason. Then you have John Lackey, Jared Weaver, And the rest of this list, I shouldn't even bring up, but I'm going to say it anyway. R.A. Dickey, Houston Street, the old reliever from the A's, Colorado, etc. Francisco Rodriguez, a.k.a. K-Rod. Bronson Arroyo, Matt Cain. These are the new guys to the list that are also joining uh, with them. Jacoby Ellsbury, Jason Wirth, Mike Napoli, J.J. Hardy, Johnny Peralta, Andre Ethier. Those guys, please. The only way to get into the Hall of Fame is they purchase a ticket. But Beltran, a lot of people are going to think that whether or not he's Hall of Fame worthy. And to me, he is not. He falls short of that. Now, he has very good numbers. And if it's the Hall of Fame of the very good, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. I'm a guy that is in the minority when it comes to Hall of Fame because I'm not going to usher anybody in that is either good or very good. The Hall of Fame is for the dominant. Is for a guy that has just been year in, year out, not only consistent, but dominant. 
And I understand over the last 10, 12 years, it's been the Hall of Fame or the consistent. And I get it. That plays into being a Hall of Fame player. But you have to be dominant. And the one guy, I hate to pick on him, but it's Craig Biggio. I get it. He got 3,000 hits. I get it that he was with one team throughout his whole career, if that counts for anything, which it shouldn't, but okay, fine. And he was an eight-time All-Star, but he played 20 years in Major League Baseball. So to be an All-Star eight times, that's 40% of your career, that's not Hall of Fame worthy. And even with the 3,000 hits, I'm sorry. Was never the best at his position, was never a candidate. I'm sure he's probably a few top 10 MVP qualifications, you know, being ranked in the top 10 as far as voting goes. But as we all know, Craig Biggio was not a dominant player. And that's the same for Beltron. Yes, did he pull up Hall of Fame worthy seasons? He did. But again, even as consistent as he was, and even if he had five or six Hall of Fame seasons, you still need a little bit more. And I'm going to explain why in this next segment. Now, there's also the Contemporary Baseball Players Committee, which is that committee that brought in Lee Smith, the longtime reliever, and also Harold Baines, the longtime DH. And as we both know, those two guys are not Hall of Famers. Yes, they've had long careers. Yes, they've had very good careers. But are they Hall of Fame locks that when you hear their name, absolutely, got to put them in. Here's a scenario where this list is a little skewed. Because on this list, you're going to have Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Rafael Palmeiro, and Kurt Schilling. And we all know that their resumes scream Hall of Fame. But we know with Bonds, Clemens, and Palmeiro, with the performance-enhancing drugs that have been alleged throughout the course of their careers, who knows if this committee, which I believe Chipper Jones is on, and a few other baseball players and executives. Because remember, when Harold Baines was brought on as far as being in the Hall of Fame, not only was Tony LaRusso on that list, but Jerry Reinsdorf, who are the former manager of the White Sox and the owner of the White Sox. So, of course, you know they're going to bring their guy into the Hall of Fame. And again, I don't know what other players and executives, I should have looked that up before I got on here, but I know Chipper Jones is on that list. And you got to wonder whether or not he's going to put in his vote for a guy like Bonds or Clemens, etc., And remember, this committee, there's only 16 people. And you only need 12 of the vote. It's not like the baseball writers are there where you have 500 writers and you got to get 75% of that vote. As long as 12 guys agree that, yep, that guy's a Hall of Famer, he's in. So with the steroid guys, I understand it's a separate issue for those who feel that they belong. Me, I'm a purist. I feel like, yes, in my mind, they're Hall of Famers, but do they deserve to have their day enshrined in Cooperstown? I still have to put a pause on that. Give them a few more years. I get it. I don't want them to suffer in that regard, but still, that's just me. But some of the other guys that are on this list, Fred McGriff, 493 home runs, another guy who had the great nickname Crime Dog as coined by Chris Berman, and to think he's tied with Lou Gehrig, all time, I don't know what he is on that list. Probably in the 40s or 50s all time on that list. But is he a lock Hall of Famer? I would consider him borderline. But again, not right off the top of your head. Oh yeah, you got to put him in. Another guy is Don Mattingly. We know the type of career he had. He was on the fast track to the Hall of Fame. And then his back gave out. And we know that he doesn't have the... We can't put him that in that Terrell Davis category because of the back portion of his baseball card. If it was a scenario where he was like Sandy Koufax, 
where he had those five, six dominant years and then had another year or two and then that was it for his career. Maybe you would consider Mattingly, but because he has a resume after, what was it, the 90 or 91 season to where he played in those years and even though, whether it be sparingly or just in and out of the lineup, but he didn't put anywhere close to what the power numbers that he had in the first part of his baseball career. So to me, Mattingly is close, but he's not going to make it in my books. Dale Murphy's another guy. I understand he won two MVPs, but still. Here's where it gets interesting, if you ask me. And this guy should have been in the Hall of Fame a long time ago, despite the fact that he may have been a louse to the media, maybe even a louse to the public. That one time where, on Halloween, he chased trick-or-treaters because they threw eggs or whatever at his home, so he went driving off on his car to try to chase them. All right? I understand he's not one of nature's noblemen. Understood. But Albert Bell, if there's anybody in that room of those 16 people, they got to put this guy in the Hall of Fame. Because, again, it's about dominance. And I don't have the numbers in front of me. You can look it up. But here's a guy that averaged almost 38 home runs a year for his career. Well over 100 RBIs. He hit 30 home runs, I believe, eight times. And knocked in over 109 times. And that was the standard when you looked at the Hall of Fame. How many years he had 30 and 100 and batted 300. And he fell below that. His career average was 295. But he had years where he batted 351 and led the league in baseball. And then the one year that he should have been an MVP in 95 where he had 50 homers, 126 RBIs. I believe batted 314 and had 50 doubles. The only player in baseball history to hit 50 doubles and 50 home runs in the same regular season. But Mo Vaughn, who had a big year himself, but he was the MVP. And I'm sure that was based on the baseball writers being more favorable towards Vaughn than they would be towards Albert Bell. So I'm just throwing my hat in the ring for Bell. I've always loved him as a player. Every time that the Indians were on back in the day, especially in that lineup with Manny Ramirez, Jim Tomey, Kenny Lofton, Carlos Baerga, etc., I always loved watching him at bat. He was the one guy that when he came up to bat in the bottom or top half of an inning, you stopped to watch. That was me. Maybe it's the next guy, not the case. But that's why I believe he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And hopefully he gets his due. And I believe that selection is this Sunday. So I'm sure maybe for Monday's podcast, we'll reconvene and talk about that. Where the Hall of Fame ballot is not until January to see who will be enshrined in Cooperstown. But that list I gave you from Carlos Beltran on down, uh uh-uh. None of those guys are deserving. And I think that's even more of a reason why with this contemporary baseball player committee ballot how they're going to want to bring in one of these guys whether it be Bonds, Clemens, Schilling, Palmero, etc or a guy like Albert Bell to be on the podium late July for 2023 to be inducted into Cooperstown so we shall wait and see when it comes to that two other things before I bid adieu of course the World Cup soccer now as we get into the knockout rounds I know there's a bunch of games here today but Tomorrow, I believe the knockout round will begin in earnest to where the USA team, where they scratched out a win the other day against Iran, where Christian Pulisic got the goal and also suffered an injury in the process, a groin injury to where he said that he's going to be in the lineup come Saturday against the Netherlands. And the Netherlands are a team that in their bracket, they were 2-0-1. So it's going to be a tough task. I'm not going to say it's a tall order because we know it's soccer. Sometimes the bounce of a ball and just a break in your way. But I would think the U.S., if Pulisic is going to be compromised, that's going to be tough for them to try to overcome, to get some goal scoring. We know they're a young team. We know that they haven't scored a lot here throughout the course of this World Cup. Only two goals here so far. Remember, they tied against Wales 1-1. They did win 1-0 against Iran, and they 
had a nil-nil tie against England last Friday. Whatever the USA does at this point, it's going to be house money. I kind of hate to say it that way because I'm sure a lot of people aren't expecting them to get out of this game against Netherlands, which will be Saturday at 10 a.m. And that's something that I'm going to be in tune to. I've been trying to follow the World Cup as much as possible. Again, I know I'm not the soccer aficionado or the expert, but I've been on top of this. And if the USA team does happen to win, they're going to go up against the winner of Argentina and Australia. Argentina, even with the loss to Saudi Arabia, of course, no problem there as they made it out of their bracket. And they will go up against the Aussies. I believe the game after, I think it's 2 o'clock on Saturday, where the USA will play at... 10 a.m. against the Netherlands, so we'll see how that's going to shake down. I don't know. I I would think the Netherlands will win the game, and I'm not trying to be unpatriotic there. Just based on how the Netherlands has played so far, and U.S., they literally had to scratch and claw just to get one goal, and we all know that even if it gets to a tie after 90 minutes, and then, of course, you're going to have the two Overtimes, I believe you're going to have, what, two 15-minute overtimes? So once you get past that, it's going to be penalty kicks. I think if you're the USA, if you get the penalty kicks, then you're in good shape. I would think that if they come out of a an onslaught there in the first 20, 30 minutes of the game where the Netherlands are attacking and let's say they get a goal and they continue to put the pressure, that's where USA will get tight. And who knows, that's where you're going to have breakdowns especially when it comes to the defense or open lanes for attackers to try to score goals. So I think the U.S., they're going to have to obviously play from in front if they have any chance to win. But at the same time, I think that the longer this goes nil-nil, or even if it does go 1-1, provided that they do take the lead, because I think if the Netherlands takes the lead, they're going to smell blood and they're going to try to do whatever it takes to just knock them out and not have to deal with going into overtime for the opportunity of the U.S. to get a late goal, to tie the game, and then get into penalty kicks. So that's how I look at that as far as the USA and from their standpoint. But we shall see. Let's see if they live to see another day, Saturday, 10 a.m., as I'm sure a lot of people here in the country will be watching. And then finally, I got to bring up this Tyson Fury scenario because he's going to be fighting Saturday against Derek Chisora. And I understand it's going to go under the radar. Not many people are going to watch or pay attention to. But back in the summer when he officially retired, I said, with boxers, he's going to resurface at some point. He's 34 years of age. I understand he has all the belts. I understand that there's no competition in the heavyweight division. We all know the heavyweight division is a joke. We all know that boxing is a shell of its old self. But be that as it may, so he goes off into the sunset. And now he decides to come out of retirement. And you would think, first and foremost, he's coming out of retirement because maybe he needs the money. Maybe he's a guy that's blown through his money or he has investments that went awry or whatever it is. And obviously that's not my business or anybody's business, but usually with boxers, they come back because of the payday. So that was the first thing I thought. But in reading an interview that had taken place sometime over the last few days to where he came out and said, no, the only reason why I'm coming back is because I'm bored. Wow. So boredom is what's bringing you back. But it wasn't even that. It was what he said after that. One of the reasons why he retired is because he had elbow ailments, arm ailments, shoulder problems with his shoulders. And he even mentioned that he may even need an arm transplant. If you need an arm transplant, my guy, why is it that you're coming back? All right, if you're bored, I'm sure there's something else you can get into. And I get it. That boxing was probably this guy's whole life. 
going back to when he was a boy, a teenager, young adult, etc. And he fought up the ranks, won the heavyweight bout. We know about his fights with Deontay Wilder, etc. Understood. But there has to be something else he could get into. You see a lot of these guys try to make the pivot, especially the former football player, whether you're Greg Hardy trying to get into MMA or Adrian Peterson, Le'Veon Bell to go to boxing, even Nate Robinson. Wherever you are, Nate, I hope you're doing well with the whole Jake Paul fiasco or Logan Paul, one of the Pauls, whatever it may be. And we get it. They try to make that pivot. But for whatever the reason, Tyson Fury hasn't made that pivot. So he's coming back into the ring to risk his health, to risk everything, all for the sake because he was bored. And even if he sold out for the money to say, you know what, $10 million is tough to pass up. I'll train for whatever, six to eight weeks and get back in the ring. Let's just hope he doesn't get knocked out or get knocked silly or worse, re-injure his arms, elbows. I didn't understand it. And people could say, Jay Reels, who are you to tell Tyson Fury what to do? And I'm by any means not judge, jury, and executioner. But let's call it as we see it. If you're coming back out of boredom, that's like me working a job for X amount of years and I become tired of it. And maybe let's say if I just became bored of it, why would I go back to it? Why? I would find something else to do or another passion of mine that, hey, I'm going to get into running. Hey, I'm going to start running and maybe start building up a charity. And I'm sure he has charities, but it's just, to me, it's just senseless. Like why? Why come back because you're bored? Come on, Tyson Fury. You could be better than that, can you? So anyway, let's see what he does in this fight. I'm not going to watch. Obviously, there's a lot of other things going on in sports with the college football and obviously the soccer. And I believe it's going to be somewhere overseas. So it's going to be early on in the day. I believe it's 2 p.m. So it's not your typical pay-per-view 11.30 p.m. fight. Based on what I read, that could change. Who knows? But Tyson Fury, come on, my guy. And that's what you have there, people. Another episode just about in the books as I bid adieu the 1st of December 30 more days until New Year's Eve and, of course, 31 days to the New Year. So, please, people, stay in the moment. Stay present. Don't look to January 1st as a rebirth or a renaissance. Let's just try to stay grounded, stay focused. Just worry about today. Stay present, people. And hopefully, as you continue to try to get better and continue to build toward that January 1st date where all the resolutions come out and, as we all know, a week later, they go right down the toilet. Uh Uh-uh. Let's not do that, people. Let's be better than that. So start today so you can build toward that day and then go into the new year like gangbusters. So for those who are out there supporting the podcast, I not only appreciate you, but you're certainly not taking for granted. Thank you so much for stopping by, for listening to your boy babble and critique on everything that's going on in the world of sports. Of course, with a little praise in between. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on wherever you get your podcast. Throw me a few stars, write a review. Please, all I want to do is increase the visibility. That's the point of doing this. Eh, maybe not the point. The point is, of course, me talking about what it is that I love, which I'll get to in a minute. But again, in order for the J Reels podcast to be known, I'm going to need some help from you guys and gals. So if you could do so, I would greatly appreciate it. If you want to hit me up on any of my socials, you could do so. The J Reels podcast on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, J Reels, one just a number on Twitter, and the old fashioned way, the J Reels podcast at gmail.com. Please send me any questions, comments, suggestions, whatever it may be. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, P is in Paul, A-T is in Tom, R-E-O-N is in Nancy, dot com slash the J Reels podcast. Whatever you want to put forth. In fact, I'm drafting up a post to put on there as we get ready to start off this month, as we get ready for the holiday season. If you want to be a little bit charitable to put forth with this endeavor, to the upkeep of the website, this whole production, 
the equipment, etc. Everything that has to do with what I say into this microphone to go through your earbuds or speakers. This is why I do what I do. Since birth, maybe even before birth, since I was in the womb, because sports, I love discussing it, talking about it, watching it, critique, praise, thoughts, opinions, analysis on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, directed, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>